Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Bad Christian Podcast. We're not back, the man. big show. Not the big show. Definitely Fuck not them. the big show. This is yeah, yeah. This is the one that's more uh, Christ centered. Yes. Uh, we were talking on. Our, if you haven't noticed, uh, or if you haven't heard, maybe I should rather I should say. We actually have a BC Club that you can join. You get two bonus episodes. You go to thebcclub.com to join, and uh, you get bonus episodes. You get basically the whole Emory catalog, which is uh, a lot of stuff that's not on the interwebs for everybody. And so you get a bunch. You get a bunch of perks, and you get my weekly email, the goods email from Toby. I mean, people love it. I get compliments all the time, and we even read. Uh, New members' names, new clubbers' names here. I'll read them in a minute, but uh, uh, what I want to talk about for a second is that this one, we, it's funny because I think you do go through different stages of life, and we were talking on uh, a recent clubber episode that I've started praying again. I was telling you that, and I've noticed that it is, it really feels genuine because I'm older and grizzled and lived through some real shit, like uh, like now when I see teenagers or 20-year-olds on TikTok talking about God will do this for you, and then I, I'm like, you haven't lived through anything, I don't think. Or like you just don't know, and, and, and maybe that's me being old and grizzled. Maybe they know more than me. I'll give it to them. I, I might be a dummy, but I just feel like I'm at a point now where my prayer is about as sincere as you could possibly get. Like I'm praying because I don't have much time. Uh, you know, I'm busy. I got all these responsibilities, all this weight, and I'm praying for real to go, Hey, this is where I'm at. And I'm not praying. I, I'm definitely, what I, my prayers have changed from like, get stuff. Like, I don't know if I ever told you this when I was in college, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pray sincerely to God for, uh, I think it was for a month that I would get $90,000. I was like a hundred thousand. I'm not going to do it. So I just prayed every day, Lord, I'm naming it and claiming it, and I'm believing God because I, I and and of course it didn't happen, and not, but like that just shows you how immature my faith was or or my belief system was that I needed that. Like I thought the money will give me something, not God, or or I could get something out of a relationship or whatever. And so now, lately, I've just been noticing my own prayer life is God. I don't know what to do, maybe, or I don't know what I'm doing, and uh. I don't know where I'm headed, but help me just to live through it as best as I can and to, you know, maybe treat my kids as best as I can and like help me to to understand that I'll make mistakes or that I'll, you know, I'm, things are going to go bad and don't let me, you know, yell about it or cry about it. And, and, and like, don't let me be selfish. Help uh-huh. me help. Like, that's my prayers. And it's like way more sincere. Like, wait a minute. I don't care. You know, we get so trapped up, uh, you know, trapped in the idea of like healing and, and, uh, uh, the good life and that Lord, you know, this is bad, but you will, you will deliver us. Like you, you're going to give us abundance and 
joy. And I, I don't think any of that. I think this is what, what we have. And so all I want to do is be able to interpret it well. You know what I mean? Like I want to interpret life well more than get stuff. I mean, I want stuff. Don't get me wrong. If I get $90,000 today, well. I, would, I would take it. But, yeah, I want to interpret my life well so that I can go, oh, this is how I should handle this. It's, not, it's still going to hurt. It's still going to be scary. It's still going to be awful. But, you know, I mean. Uh, uh, to see more clearly. Yeah, just see more yeah. clearly and, and understand the moment more than a selfish take on it. Like, wait a minute, this is involved, this is involved, these people are involved, this is going here, there, you know, like I said, I mean, things are going to hurt in life, so I don't want to just try to avoid all those, because why? I, I mean, there must be a reason things hurt. You know, there must be a reason that we go through bad shit and it's hard and all that stuff, so I, my prayers now are more, I'm trying to make them that way. I'm not good at this at all or, or you know, trying to educate people on how to pray. For me, it's just like, God, can I just help me to understand so that so that I don't just say this is the way it's got to be or you know or I've been wronged yeah you know, like yeah yeah more I've been thinking more about when I'm wronged what is my involvement in it and how yeah. did I maybe potentially lead somebody to wronging me or allow them to wrong me or what what are do I ha- have boundaries why don't I have boundaries you know what I mean all, all those things I think I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about myself and like I said in my email this week, uh, once again, thebcclub.com, you can join, you can get my email. But I talked about, I was <laughs> going through my life thinking, am I having a midlife crisis? Like I don't want to, you know, a brand new Corvette or, go, you know, spend a bunch of money or anything like that. But I'm just, I was, had that thought of, did I waste my youth? Is, is it all coming to an end? Like, am I, you know, what's happening? And I was like, no, I don't really feel that way. What I feel is I just, I want to be. I want to be there for my kids like in a way that, you know, a lot of times my family never was for me and not, maybe not even their fault. They did. I think my parents did the best they could, but of course they had problems like everybody else's, but I just want to, I want to be, uh, somebody solid. I just want to be somebody solid that, that even with all my faults and everything, you know, those, but you know that I'm, I'm there and I'll be there and that I'm working to get better. So it sounds like a, a motivational poster it's not that much i mean it's a little sad though it's not the most motivational thing in the world it's it's you know I mean? you're not you're not promising it. You, i was i thought like, i was uplifting people <laughs> no well i think it, well i think it's you're i think you're t- talking real talk and truth yeah. though so it's like but that's what i'm saying this motivational stuff doesn't feel the way the way the thing you're saying feels sad but true and whole <laughs> like to me i like that feeling it feels real and good right. um and true so that's a good good goal. It's not the most motivating thing because it's like you don't get ninety thousand dollars probably. Right. Right. But one hundred percent. So what? Yeah. What's ninety thousand dollars? I know. I that's know. Th- yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, where's what the things that I value? What? Why do I value those? I'm yeah. just. I, I really just. Security. I think I'm just asking real questions. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just. Uh, I was just talking to my dad this week. He walked. He quit his job finally. You know, he he's turned seventy on Saturday. And he's been talking about it forever, about quitting his job. And he said, one day they're just going to make me mad and I'm just going to walk right out of there. And that's what he did. That's what he did. He said, uh, wow. stuff piled up and he had been trying to tell people about it. And he, he said, I said, how'd you tell him? I said, you go up there to the, the boss man's, uh, office. He said, no, I called him back there to the warehouse where I'm at. And he called him back there and he said, when the, when the boss man showed up, he, he said, here's my keys. I'm going to be leaving. And so now, but now he doesn't know what to do with himself. Cause my dad's like, just an unbelievable 
his identity is wrapped up in work. And now he's a little bit scared, like, oh, I don't have work anymore. So what am I going to do? He said, so all, you know, he's been, he quit a couple of weeks ago now, I guess. Um, every day he's been working in his yard like crazy. Just working in his yard. That's good. Yeah, it is, but he, he, he needs work. Well, he, he needs, needs it. You he know, needs relationships, you know I mean? and yeah, the only oh, ones yeah. he had were ones that worked that were negative that he fantasized right. about leaving, and then hoping that it negatively impacted right. those around him. The, right. So, so his remaining relationships are negative ones. Yeah. Which he hoped for negative outcomes, and yeah. then has achieved that. Yeah. So now he'll have to go from the place of having a relationship. Now his relationship is just his own self. So yeah. Now it'll have to be those things in the yard that are wronging him yeah i'll, <laughs> have I'll to be was, the leaves wronging him it, until it, he can form some new relationships if he can and will try but that'll yeah. be his challenge will he what relationships will he seek to form from here yeah i don't any? i don't that's know what it'll be to. about the, the funniest part is he still has to get in a jab at me like he, he can't he can't not to go uh, i was like i was just i was into it. i was talking to him about it everything he goes yeah but i guess now i'm like you don't have to work it at all <laughs> I, you know what i said to him what did you say i said that's right i said i guess you can write really good songs that people like too huh yeah and he goes well he goes no no i'm not i'm not writing those you know he tries we changed the subject he knew or something but i was just like you know anyway i thought that was i i it's an interesting time that we are living in you and i are our parents are older or like your mom has passed away. We talked about Devin's mom and dad have passed away. You know, like, I mean, we are moving into a time Do you know where... anybody with grandparents? No, I don't think I do. I just, I think, think I... I just thought of that the other day, but do I, I, do I even know anybody that has grandparents? I mean, no. Like, grandparents I don't think means I do. parents. Like, right. If somebody says grandparents, they mean parents. Of my kids, kids, I know. Of kids. <laughs> my kids have grandparents. But That's not what I'm saying. Anybody, That's not a grandparent. Right, right. But I don't. I don't even know if any of my friends have grandparents or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think that's that ship has sailed for sure. So Toby, I uh, don't know if you knew this or not, but for the people that joined the BC Club this week, yeah. they sent in the worst thing they ever prayed for. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> really, like you know how you're saying you had some of those immature yeah. younger prayers. But so did Rebecca Snyder, who joined the club. She prayed for her once. Prayed for her third grade teacher doris steadman to die wow yeah that but she you know it was immature she realizes about her prayers are mature but that's what she put in do you have the list too george yeah george what's the worst thing he what he george can you pronounce george's last name this is a tough one p-a-p-u-c-h-i-s george papuchus papuchus is what i would think well it's very this is a bad one. He prayed to hook up with Doris, the teacher. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That, you know, once he was older, once he got 18, he, was, he's, he, he put it in here. Once he was 18 in le- of legal yeah. age, of course, he broke Still that in pretty, there. He do not want people to think he's a bad guy. But he, he wanted to hook up with Doris because apparently she was very attractive. Yeah, she was. You got a- Albert uh, St- Stoddinger? St- Albert Stoddinger. That's, these are some good names. George and Albert and Rebecca. We got Mahogany Williams up next, too. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is Albert, strong names. Yeah, what did Albert pray for? He prayed that <laughs> his parents would get divorced. Oh, God. And they did. So, he, you know, that was that was tough for him. Like, God, ans- but, God answers prayers. 
but it was an answered prayer. But maybe they were better for it. I don't know. But yeah, I'm glad that uh, right you just came up. Uh, they just sent them right as the podcast started. Yeah. Right? yeah, like I'm having to find. You to find Mahogany it. Williams is here. But thank uh, you for joining the club, Albert. I really appreciate the tra- the transparency of you guys is inspiring, and it continues yeah. to inspire multitudes. Yeah. So Mahogany everybody. Williams prayed that Joey wouldn't be on the podcast anymore. Uh, you <laughs> oh my son of God. a bitch, Mahogany. Good God! And it God answered the prayer. It, it, God, that was a tough one for me. I, I prayed the opposite way, Mahogany, but you know, I guess Daniel Sigmund also joined the BC Club recently, probably to get the bonus episodes. And um, he, his <laughs> prayer is. Do you know what it is? Yeah, yeah. He's has currently has a prayer out there. It's lingering right now. Hopefully that, he hears it. Yeah, I mean, this one's still open. And yeah, so yeah. I appreciate him being, you know, forthright about it. But he yeah. has prayed that the aliens do come. Oh, God. He's literally prayed to God that the, <laughs> the aliens, aliens are real and will yeah. come down, you know, to yeah. humanity. And, and maybe take over. Yeah, because he's not. He thinks this, he's tired of this bullshit. Right. So yeah. that's what he has an active prayer. So hopefully. Everybody would agree, even if they're the most. Villainous, Just awful, quit awful praying nasty shit. Alien, I mean, the meanest, the meanest aliens ever would definitely still run America better than any president we've had recently. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's what I'm saying. Think about all the bad things that happen in the world, and then think about people out there praying all the time, probably for some. You know what I mean? Right. Like how how do you know that those aren't prayers coming true? All the bad yeah. shit that happens yeah. because yeah. a lot right. of people pray for negative shit out there. Anyway. I think they've these people have had a lot more prayers that are positive, but they just have yeah. admitted to their you know worst prayers. Um, so thank you for the transparency, everybody. Um, one more thing we got to say before we get to the conversation today, and that is big We're going on tour. We, yeah, we got some. We got big stuff coming this year, and this Real is big. just the war. This is just the warm up to fireworks no. for uh, coming later. But songs and stories. Our uh, acoustic act intimate, that is calm, that's perfect. intimate. It's kind of like podcasting and music. Play a bunch of hits, very intimate. Those shows are so fun. That act has come really come a long way, and yeah. it seems to continue to sell more and more tickets and be a, a more viable thing. So we keep putting more into it and adding more dates and um, improving it. We just did the stream of it, um, but we've got dates coming up for that in April at the end of April and the end of May and at the end of April that's the 28th 29th and 30th we're going to be in Chicago Grand Rapids and Detroit so those and are going to be Sunday in Indianapolis oh and, and Indianapolis so four of yep. those four and dates at the end of May we're going to do that South by So What Fest in Texas yep. and we're going to go to the Emory's most favorite market probably San Antonio and do a songs and stories which is going to just probably be unbelievable and Houston and Houston. But you remember yep. that San Antonio show we had? It was so good. One oh, of the last so times good. we've been there. Yeah. So if a fraction of those people come to the songs and stories, that's just going to be, I know that's going to just be probably one of the best ones. So yeah. um, that's very exciting. And then this is Go just to emorymusic.com to get those tickets. We'll have more fireworks coming this year, but this is all we've got to announce at this time. But yeah, get those tickets at um, emorymusic.com. And don't forget 10% off at Marriage Supply with the mm-hmm. code BCPOD. Um, and then you want to run an ad from Jordan from the Horny Housewife? Yeah, Jordan from Hor- Jordan from Horny Housewife uh, podcast has been working with us uh, and doing ads for Marriage Supply. So we'll, let's let her tell you a little bit about Marriage Supply. Right on. It is 
never a bad time to add a new toy to the fam, okay? A new toy to the collection. Men, you want to help your woman feel supported in her self-pleasure journey? Get her a fucking new toy. That will give her the stamp of approval that she's looking for. So trust me when I say you're going to want to check out marriagesupply.com. They know that sex and marriage can get stale, can get repetitive, and what's better and what's more intentional than getting something to add to the bedroom, okay? There's something for him. There's something for her. There's something for both of you. And don't forget lube, okay? Always. Why not? Why would you not? Why would you not? Why not? What does it hurt? makes everything better. Marriagesupply.com is a great website. It's super easy to use, super wonderful prices. That's my favorite part with both him and her in mind. They also have these awesome curated boxes where it comes with a little bit of everything, a nice little surprise for you both. It's a great gift as well. And they are amazing and they're giving all the Freaky Fam listeners a discount, okay? So you can use my code housewife and get 10% off your order. That's marriagesupply.com. You know I put all this ish in the listener notes so that you don't forget do your husband or wife a favor. Do a just because gift. Flowers die, okay? Silicone is forever. I vote the surprise route, but if you need some guidance, shop together. Get turned on together. Pick something out that you've never tried before, something new and shiny. Okay, Toby, so we're going to jump to the conversation with Warren. If you want to set that up, any? How do oh, yeah, we find yeah. Warren? Yep. Um. So Warren, uh, I'd been following a little bit of his story for a while and, um, just because like after doing true man and talking about masculinity and I mean, learning a lot more about how men are lonely and disconnected from friend groups and seeing it in the church where men are just valued as maybe a, you know, an usher or something, or, you know, they're not really connected with their faith and God. Um, and so I stumbled upon Warren and he's been, uh, he grew up, uh, grew up, he worked, uh, diligently early on in his life in the feminist movement and then started moving towards, uh, seeing men kind of getting left behind. And so this is, he has a book called, uh, the boy crisis and it just, it, I mean, it's phenomenal. He, he's just a, this is a great, great, it's not an interview. I guess, I would say it's more like just a, a learning event. <laughs> Uh, more than the, us, <laughs> in, 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 more than us interviewing him, I just feel like this is something that I feel like uh, men are getting left behind and lost in a lot of what is going on in our culture now. And we need men, and men need to be recognized and understood. And there's a lot of mental health issues, a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of disconnect, like I said. And uh, Warren has a lot of stats. To, I mean, his book is like a, I mean, it's like a textbook. I mean, yeah. the, the, the information in the book it's is a lot. Is, it, I mean, it is, I mean, it is a lot and it will totally change your mind about, you know, raising boys and where men are headed. Um, so yeah, let's bring on Warren. Good morning. Good morning. Are you Toby? I'm Matt. Toby. I'm, I'm Toby. And you're Toby. Glad to meet yep. you. Good to meet you uh, as well. Thanks thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to our doing this together. That should be fun. And it's yeah. a morning for, for me, but where are you? I'm in um, California, just outside of San okay. Francisco. Excellent. Morning for you. So where are you located? I'm, I'm just up, up above you in Seattle, and Toby's over there in Illinois, so he's he's in the afternoon. Yeah. He just had, he, you know, he's about at lunchtime. 
cross cross country um, show here. All right. Yes, yeah, a cross yeah, country yeah. Well, show. We've done it that way for about seven or eight years. So we just kind of used Very to nice. it. We have a, a little bit of an interesting story. We we grew up in South Carolina in the Bible Belt and then got out of there to pursue our band. And so we moved to Seattle all together and our band did has done really well. We're still in it, still touring, doing really well with it. And uh, Matt ended up staying and I married a girl from the Midwest. So I'm, a, I'm in Champaign, Illinois. <laughs> yeah, but we're career rock musicians and independent creators and podcasters, entertainers type of people. Um and I do think that's relevant to our discussion today because we, you know, grew up in the rural South and like I said, Bible Belt and to, in a very conformist um, type of culture that we, you know, never did uh, fit in too well. And that's all, that's been the theme. And then we found this music community and, the, you know, DIY punk music and stuff like that. And we kind of have rode that um, as a way to, you know, deal with some of the stuff that I see and found a lot of common people with common problems and had encounters with um, a lot of the stuff that you talk about in your book. So we thought it would make a great combo. Terrific. And what's the name of your band? It's called Emery, E-M-E-R-Y. E-M-E-R-Y. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Not related, yeah. not related to the university, which is E-M-O-R-Y. That's a, oh, right. yeah. Yeah. That, that was near us, uh, you know, uh-huh. in Atlanta area. But uh, yeah, I was, I was thinking that maybe since you're from that area and you have a Clemson shirt on. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I want to tell you too, it's so interesting how I stumble upon guests. I'm almost certain that I first found out about you on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Someone had posted something about your book, the the boy crisis. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I actually have done, I've done my own, uh, I call it the, the true man experience where I go out and meet in like living rooms with small groups of men and just mm-hmm. kind of talk about some things and just, uh, communication wise and i know you're big on communication especially in relationships uh like one of your course some of your courses are communication within relationships and uh so i just personally i i I mean honestly i would say just just with my upbringing i i felt like it was kind of laid on my heart that men have an extremely hard time i started feeling this way for a, a long time ago but started this baby back in around 2016 um working with men and giving them a space where they could speak freely uh, not be judged. Like I do phone calls where men can call me. We speak for 30, 45 minutes and they can say anything and nothing ever leaves and there's no judgment. And I've, I just had been realizing more and more that men have an extremely hard time communicating their feelings, thoughts, desires, emotions, especially with each other. <laughs> and then maybe even harder with their spouse or their girlfriends or their, their wives or their lovers, whatever it might be. And so your book, I saw the boy crisis and several of your books, to touch on this as well. Maybe we can even talk about some others if we get a chance to, but, uh, I just was fascinated by you, the, the, the title, first of all, just the boy crisis. Cause I was like, is there a boy crisis? What is that? Cause you know, I feel like we live in the most wealthiest you know time in American history and all this, but there does, there is a problem. So all that to say, we really do appreciate your time here. And, and, uh, I wanted to start with though, like just reading up on your bio a little bit, it's interesting coming you, cause you were really prevalent, influential in the feminist movement. And, and for me growing up as a Christian, like, uh, you know, I grew up charismaniac Christian or whatever, and feminist or the word feminism was taught to me as evil and dangerous. You don't want to go there. So if you could give us a little bit about your history, how, how you did that. And then, you know, and we can get into then changing, not, not changing, but moving into the, uh, talking about men, I'd appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I guess my background <laughs> was, I was I was brought up. Uh, my my father was Catholic in his background, and um, my mother um, had a combination of Catholicism 
and um, a little bit of Jewish in her background. And so, um, and so my parents decided to get me away from either of those um, extremes and to bring me up as a Protestant. And so um, my, my dad's choice uh, was to always go around and, and interview um, ministers and among the ministers, see which ones gave the most interesting sermons that could keep him awake um, and hopefully therefore keep me awake as well. And, um, and to, you know, to, to teach sort of genuine sort of secular human values uh, with some underlying, um, you know, sort of basis of, of um, morality that he thought that Christianity at its best would be able to offer. And so, you know, I went to church, but it was very, very early in my life. I mean, you know, when I was like third, fourth, fifth grade, I was challenging the Sunday school teacher about, you know, um, how do we know there's a God and uh, how, do, yeah. how do we know there's a Christ? And, you know, and I would uh, challenge and challenge him. And before, you know, eventually um, he would back off and say, you know, Warren, it's just about faith. And I said, well, <laughs> if you told me that at the beginning, we wouldn't have had an argument. Right. <laughs> if you want me to believe in some magical theory, you know, about something that, you know, will, will um, so solve problems, et cetera. So that said, you know, now, now when um, I'm dealing with the boy crisis and particularly single moms who are raising boys by themselves, which is you know, the, the, you know, the, the boy crisis resides basically where dads do not reside. But, and so that leaves single mothers very, um, you know, feeling like, wow, you know, I, am I going to be jeopardizing my son? And single mothers are extremely hardworking. They care a great deal. And so, you know, I oftentimes in the, in the boy crisis book, I you know, sort of say, all right, here's what a single mother can do. And aside from getting the biological father back in the scene again, uh, but what a single mother can do is, um, you know, get the children involved in sports, get, you know, and, um, and then I direct toward uh, male coaches that are positive, um, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and so on but also faith-based communities. So here I am recommending faith-based communities, even though I, you know, I'm not a person who says that there's, there is a God per se. I don't know whether there's a God or not, um, but there is, um, but you know, my guess is not. And so the, um, and so, but, but, but believing um, people who do um, pray um, get a great deal of solace from it, just like people who meditate get a great deal of solace from it. And pr pretty much um, praying and meditating are very close to each other in terms of what they accomplish. Mm -hmm. And um, I do encourage single moms to look out for a minister, priest, um, rabbi, or imam, um, and to make sure that that minister, priest, rabbi, or imam is a responsible male who will get your son involved in a, um, a, a group of other boys his age and to um, and act as a father figure um, who will also open up your, um, and have other, other boys um, in, in that faith-based community talk about what's bothering them, talk about the, the masks that they wear to be, uh, to show as a, a strong man, but what's behind that mask, the weakness, the hurts, a fellow named Vashanti Branch does this systematically. Um, but to do this in the faith-based community allows boys to share from their heart 
Um, and But the crucial thing is that it has to be confidential. There can never be any leakage of, you know, oh, I was in the group, you know, with Joey and, and Joe, you know, uh, says, or, you know, Matt or Toby says this, you know, and, you know, the, and, um, and then that, because once boys feel that there's not confidentiality, uh, then they start keeping their, their appearance of strength um, to themselves. And mm-hmm. um, men's weakness is our facade of strength uh, because it takes away all the, it, it covers up and prevents us from sharing all the things that are insecure about us. And every human being, male or female, feels many, many insecurities as we're growing up. I can't believe the way you're laying that out and how well it fits with like my, my and everybody I know's experience um, in a way. And we've had this whole long journey of going like not understanding faith and questioning it. And then as adults trying to really take it seriously and then to deconstruct that faith and all the while doing music and stuff. So I'm in the position where I would say that I've just had what I would consider tremendous privilege in that my parents were good parents who gave me a safe enough home and environment. And then the church environment for me did accomplish a lot of what you described there. Like to be, to have a youth group or an adult figure that could talk to me, that could see me, I think, you know, with big brother programs and uncles through history, you know, creating that thing where the, a child is seen and heard you know, in a in a group or a community or outside of even just the the mother and father seems to be a really big deal. And the church, no matter what its faults are, I mean, it takes advantage of this too and is abused wildly, so dangerous. But nonetheless, and there's all kind of other you know tagalongs that that cause problems in the in the religious culture. But no, that one is really really solid. And then the gateway for us from that is there to actually Christian music. Um, where we're playing Christian rock that's heavy or heavy metal like Christian rock, where the whole name of the game that has made the whole genre of emo and all that stuff successful, I'm not sure, I'm sure you're not familiar with the emo genre, but it's about vulnerability. It's about mm-hmm. express the, the, the songs that are going to work the best mm-hmm. and the heroes in, the, in, the, in that genre of music are the ones that are best able to be vulnerable and say what, they really, what their weaknesses are. The whole genre is about expressing your weakness and then there's the spiritual component and it just comes right out of that so that um that's i think that's super fascinating but that's you know kind of the path that that a lot of us have have taken and gotten the benefit out of that and i just can't imagine where a lot of the people that i know that are successful or entertainers or in this genre um, would be if they didn't have those those components to be able to work out their vulnerabilities and weaknesses and be seen and accepted and have you know because we learn by modeling as children so if there's nobody to model it from, then what have we got, you know? Well done. Would you send me some of the songs that that um, th- that manifest exactly what you're talking yeah. about, especially yeah, the sure. vulnerabilities? It is, you know, it is, it, there's, there's so much that goes on every day uh, with, uh, you know, as you know, I was in, deeply involved with the feminist movement in, uh, many years ago. And sort of, I guess, the leading male feminists in the world, and spoke all around the world on the importance of feminism, and the um, and and now I've begun to see that. But you know, feminists made this huge mistake of um, of of saying that because men earn more, we have more power. When in fact, uh, what normally happens is that men don't usually earn today, especially that much more or more at all, um, <clears throat> until they have children. 
And when they have children, they often give up their dream, uh, their dream of being a, a, a musician, a dream of being because the music, the music um, is a very variable in its pay, as you put, as you know. Yeah. You know, someday you could be a big, you know, the you know um, the Beatles, and the next day you could be nothing. Um, but the, you know, ninety nine percent of musicians never make enough of a living to be able to support a wife and children, um, and so they end up having to give up that dream. The same with authors. The same with actors. The same with artists. Uh, we have the word starving artist for a reason because the chances are fairly good. Not only will you starve as an artist, but you certainly will not be able to support uh, your wife and children, especially if your wife has, has decided to be full time with the children. So there's uh, so there's an enormous need. Uh, for uh, so so when men give up um, their their dream uh, the glint in their eye uh, when children are born and they decide they need to quit being say an elementary school teacher and become a principal or a, a superintendent of schools and then they hear that um, if they do become a superintendent of schools that you know men have all the power that there's more women in education than there are men but yet men are the principals and the superintendent of schools this shows you that men dominate you know all the powerful positions in society and that appears to be true from the feminist perspective and from maybe some women's perspective but what most people and families know is that what that that's not that earning money is not power earning money is often a forfeiting power um, and in in order to earn money that somebody else spends while you die sooner um, because the great majority of men who um, would prefer to be that elementary school teacher rather than deal with administration every day and bickering parents and boards of education and so on um, but they do that because they earn twice as much, even though they work twice as often as 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 much, um, and they stress out more, and they oftentimes have jobs that they don't like. And what we in the feminist movement did is we took something that was the male sacrifice, and we called it male privilege. We took something that was the male sacrifice and called it male power, and um, and that left a lot of men feeling that you know they they spent their life trying to make sure that their children had opportunities uh, that they never had, and then they were and then in the traditional family they were appreciated for earning that bread, but with feminism they were criticized for earning that uh, that income um, as if they were the oppressors and as if they were oppressing women and keeping women back as opposed to giving women the opportunity to either be full-time with their children, full-time in the workplace or do some combination of both. Mostly when children are born, moms have three options, work full-time, children full-time or, or some combination of both. And dads usually have three options also, uh, work full-time, work full-time and work full-time, you know, or work overtime if they're an executive or work two jobs or three jobs if they're a working class person. Mm -hmm. That that's, uh, describes a lot of people that I know that they, that, I mean, everybody I know in where I live, there's dads that make a ton of money and are not around their family and yes. they're not happy. And mm -hmm. I would never trade places with them, even though they make quadruple what I make, not in a million yes. years. Yes. Um, but the, you know, the way that the the guys in our band we've been able to make this life where we're a lot more like stay-at-home dads that have a career and so it's just I, you know the thing about working full-time for a boss and his company is something that i've known from a very early age that i would be completely allergic or un, in, unable to like that's part of it it's like well i'm never going to be able to conform to that anyway like i will never be able to do that so 
you know, just avoiding that. It's always seemed like a trap to me to have to have a job where you work a lot, whether or not you make a lot of money. <laughs> this is so insightful on your part, um, Matt, because the, the, the people who understand this at a large level are the Japanese millennials. And in the Boy Crisis book, I talk about this, this word called Kuroshi. Um, and Kuroshi means, is Japanese for death at the desk or death from overwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, um, and now the J- Japanese millennials pl- have one of their favorite games is called Kuroshi. And everybody in the game gets a Kuroshi figure. And then you have to go ahead and um, win at the game by climbing higher and higher on the ladder of success um, faster than anybody else. And if you're the first person to get to the top of that um, hierarchy of uh, political power, um, corporate power, religious power, um, whatever structure you're climbing, when the person who gets to the top of the hierarchy first commits suicide. Oh my God. <laughs> because what the, what the Japanese millennials understand is that that person has committed suicide as a human being mm-hmm. in exchange for winning as a human doing. Mm-hmm. And the story of masculinity throughout history has been the story of disposing of yourself as a human being. For extrinsic reward. For, for extrinsic reward, which provided status. But if you look at status carefully, the other way of looking at the word status is to think of it as a social bribe. We, every generation had its war. And in each generation's war, we call the, you know, we said, you know, oh, Uncle Joe there, whose picture is on the mantle, you know, he was in the Marines. He died in the Marines, but he was really a hero. He died for our country in World War II, and we should all really be uh, you know, in honor of him. And so that young boy, maybe eight, nine, ten years of age, who's always being criticized by his parents, you know, is thinking, okay, you know, if I really want to be, instead of criticized, if I really want to be honored and praised and respected, you know, I can join this next um, generation, my generation's war. And so what the boy is being trained for is to be disposable as a way of being a male. Now, in the old days, um, he was disposable in war. Today, we need fewer boys and men in war. And or he was disposable in the old days in um, as a sole breadwinner. Um, you know, he, women didn't um, today. Fortunately, more a much higher percentage of women are sharing the responsibility of breadwinning. But still, when women share the responsibility of breadwinning, they almost always are interested in marrying men. If they're if they're going to plan to have children, they almost start always looking for men who are earning as much or more than they do so that they will have the three options of being with the children full-time or with the workplace full-time or doing some combination of both and the man doing, doing the other. And so there's still pressure on the man to be the primary breadwinner, um, but not nearly as much pressure as there used to be. And so men have this opportunity in the future to be, um, instead of being the primary breadwinner or disposable in war, we have this opportunity to encourage more men to be involved as full-time dads. And I've been suggesting to just today, the Andrew Yang, um, the presidential candidate who was a democratic presidential candidate and is now starting his own forward party to run for president in um, uh, 2024. Um, he released a podcast with me on, uh, on the importance of the boy crisis. 
And so that is, uh, and so his, his and my journey is one of suggesting that there needs to be something like a father war, warrior program where we're saying to men, what we need men to do in the future, instead of kill and be killed, is to love and be loved. That uh, single mothers are needing the support and help of men who care about being involved as dads and sharing the burdens and also sharing the responsibilities. It's no longer the right thing to do to have single mothers say one word more than any other, which is the word overwhelm. Um, and dads need to be sharing that burden and also sharing that joy. And if feminists should be doing anything, they should be arguing for the sharing uh, on the part of dads of that joy. But instead, feminists have been arguing not for dads and moms to be sharing equally, but for moms to have the choice of whether they want, um, to, for moms to have the right to children and dads to have to fight for children after divorce. And that is really a, a lose-lose situation. It's lose lose for the overwhelmed moms. It's lose it's lose for the fathers who feel no purpose, and it's it's a loss for the children um, who um, we now know. Uh, you know, when I did the research for the boy crisis, I submitted to my publisher um, ten causes of the boy crisis, and as I analyzed all ten of the causes, by far and away, I came, I came to understand that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. Um, and I was shocked to see that that was true in more than 70, 70 different areas from suicide to drug addiction, to uh, alcohol addiction, to death, you know, death from overdosing on opioids, to, um, to lower sperm counts, to shorter telomeres. Um, it's just amazing the um, degree to which dads are helpful. And so one of the big explorations for the boy crisis was not just asking, um, you know, not just showing the evidence as to why dads are so important, but seeing, you know, but understanding what the differences are between dad style parenting and mom style parenting uh, that lead to the children who do best having what I call checks and balance parenting, uh, where both mothers and fathers are bringing the best of what they have to offer in their propensity, for example, on the part of mothers to be more uh, nurturing and protective the part, on the part of fathers to encourage risk-taking and do, doing roughhousing, doing many other things like that, that lead to the children raised by both parents simultaneously to do much, much better. How, uh, I'm a huge fan. I don't know how familiar you are with Robert Bly, poet and author. Yeah, Robert, Robert, Robert and I were friends. We Oh, no way. And, we att we attended each other's workshops. He um, came to my home in um, Ido uh, my my second home in Idlewild, where we had a um, a men's weekend together and did um, you know and just walk talk and and you know and planned at that weekend the men's health network. Oh uh, wow, that is which, amazing! I didn't know yeah. that. That is so cool. I, I but uh, one of the things that he talks about, and I was going to ask you about it. It feels as if uh, like you're, you're talking about boys used to there used to be a process or like a you know a, a transition from childhood to manhood and then you were recognized by other men as now being a man and now it seems like we have traded some success that is ultimately empty in some way like financial success there's there's obvious value to it but there's there's not a recognition now of oh you you know you graduate high school go do something or, you know oh you better get a college education and then people get screwed over with a, a student loan or you know they at every step, there's not a 
in this culture, it's like, okay, now you're on your own. Prove that you're worthy or something like that. And it feels as if boys don't know now because they've always just, like you said, war or work was always just necessary. It was just, oh, it's just necessary. So that's just what you do. Now it feels a little lost because not only those things seem to, you know, like my father worked his whole life and he's not happy. You know what I mean? Like he, he didn't feel fulfilled. He thought, I'll work really hard, provide for my family. I know there's some joy in providing for us and taking care of us, but now, uh, you know, he's in his late sixties, about to be 70. He's thinking about retiring. He doesn't know what he's going to do with himself. Yes. And so now he feels empty. And I, and I saw that growing up that he wasn't ever happy with his job and it took him away from us and he Mm -hmm. wasn't ever fulfilled, even though we had money. And so there's not this real transition. And then he didn't, he just thought, Oh, do what I do because what else are you going to do? You know, you're in Greer, South Carolina in the eighties or nineties. What do you, what else are you going to do? Just go do this. And so, what is it? There isn't a way now for boys to go, oh, I'm a man and I'm recognized as that. So now I'm qualified or, you know, what is that? Or, or do you see that as an issue too? Yeah, first of all, absolutely. Um, second, I think here's the, the larger picture of what's happened. Um, historically speaking, every and every generation I was saying before has, has, has had its war. And so there were two senses of purpose almost every male learned to have. <clears throat> One was... Um, that, that there that he could sacrifice himself in war or risk sacrificing himself in war, and and he would have that sense of purpose. I can protect the country. I can make sure that there's no you know that we're not going to be ruled by Nazis in the future. And so he could he could feel proud of himself. Now he may die in the process, or more recently, especially come back with PTSD, uh, which you know and commits you know as we all know, uh, men are far more likely to commit suicide um, after war than they are to be killed in war these days. And you know, and when they don't commit suicide, they they're often dealing with PTSD and traumas for the rest of their life, coming from um, being hurt in one way or the other, psychologically or physically, in war. Um, but there are at least fewer men that are needed to do that today than there have been in the past. Secondly, there are fewer men that are needed for to be sole breadwinners, as I was mentioning before. So, but that's the good news. And it's also the bad news. The, the good news is less, fewer men dying. The bad news is that there's a purpose void. The good possible news is that when a boy is brought up by a father and a mother, he usually tends to have this happen with him. The mother and the father um, begin to start identifying what his or his or her talents are. If it's a, if it's a girl, the same basic process with a girl, but more intensely with a boy. And so, with if as they so they may, the mom is more likely to say something like, "You know, sweetie, you are a good singer. You could be a you know uh, you could be in a band. You could be you know you you're you're great at the drums. You're and the mom is likely to see." the gift that the child has and and imagine that child making a living and being a star with that gift, even though there may be a million other people with about that same level of, of, uh, <laughs> of talent. I'm, I'm um, 100% certain that uh, that describes me, at least. I think, Dev, I mean, you know. <laughs> no. Well, you've proven. I mean, well, no. What you took to get to be successful with a band required something else other than talent. It required right. discipline. It required perseverance. 
And that's where the dad tends to come in. Uh, the mom often sees the dream and encourages the dream and imagines even in our own mind, you know, that this person could be an Olympic, um, you know, gold medalist. Uh, but the dad, you know, is much more likely to say something like, well, if you really want to be an Olympic gold medalist, here's the sacrifices that it's going to take. It's going to mean that you're going to have to lose a lot of uh, the ability to go to your friends' parties. You're going to have to be um, focused on, on the discipline of this. Um, and, and, and the kid says, okay, I can do that. But then in the final analysis, the kid wants to go to the parties. The kid wants to play the video game. The kid wants to do, you know, something else. And dad is more likely to say some version of, listen, you're going to make these sacrifices. I'll make the sacrifice of taking you to, uh, the practice sessions, but you've got to make the sacrifice of practicing and doing, doing your homework. And at the same time, keeping your grades up. Um, and so, uh, and then the, the kid often feels, well, you're being so mean. I have to have a, you know, I have to have a life. I have to enjoy myself too. I said that, and the, you know, the dad is more likely to say, that's okay. If you want to enjoy yourself, you go ahead and enjoy yourself, but don't expect to be the Olympic gold medalist uh, by having a balanced life. Um, and, you know, uh, I'll maybe even encourage you to have a balanced life rather than becoming that NBA star, or Olympic gold medalist or the Beatles. Um, and so the, the, the child then starts to begin to learn more likely, and sometimes these roles are reversed, more likely from the dad that there's no option but to, um, to, but to have this boundary enforcement that the dad is more likely to enforce. That is, the dad, is, the dad and mom will both say, sweetie, you have to be disciplined in order to be a good singer and have your own band. And you have to be aware of your business aspect, not just your musical aspect. And you have to, you know, uh, invest money and risk money and you risk failure. And, and, you know, you may do a bad record followed by a good record and on and on and on. And you're going to be tempted to do drugs and you're going to be tempted to do other things because the stress is going to be great. And so the, the dad is more likely to uh, when the child says, says, I'll do those things, but doesn't do those things, the dad is more likely to say, then mom and I are not going to take you to practice. And mom and I are not going to invest money in sending you on a tour for, with your lacrosse team so you could um, play Olympic lacrosse. Um, but, um, but, you know, so you've got to do those types of things. And with mom and dad working together, the children tend to get the checks and balance parenting of dad's propensity to enforce boundaries and mom's propensity to um, to ignite, be ignited by, and help the child ignite her his dream. Mm. That's and then there's the people who are very reactive to the, you know, extremes of the the toxic extremes of that. Like the dad is too hard on the kid and unloving, or the mom who is just a, you know, mama bear to the degree where it's they they don't see other people. <laughs> Their kid. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And that's exactly why the checks and balance parenting works so well, because, um, and you see this on so many levels. So for example, uh, you know, a, a child will say to, to mom, you know, can I, can I climb the tree in the backyard? And mom will say, well, sweetie, maybe in a few years. Uh, that'll be fine. And, you know, then, then the child, having been disappointed, goes over to dad and says, you know, can I climb the tree in the backyard? And the dad will say, well, okay, but be really careful. Um, and then the child starts climbing the tree in the backyard and mom goes, I just told, you know, Jimmy or Jane, you know, that they couldn't climb that tree. What are you letting that tree, um, the child climb the tree for? You know, that she or he could fall, um, get a concussion, and that could be the end or even get killed. Uh, you're so insensitive um, uh, you know, to to those the safety of our child, and Dad will say, "Well, you know, uh, uh, Dad won't say this, 
But what is true about the climbing of the tree is that the child that climbs that tree is actually likely to increase his or her IQ because the synapses in the brain are constantly, new synapses are being triggered and wired um, to be able to um, assess what risk is worth taking, what risk isn't, um, and so on. Um, But I've never heard a dad say to a mom, you know, I really want the child to increase his or her IQ and and increase his judgment as to what is safe and what isn't. So a good mom and dad will have a thoughtful conversation about, I don't want the child to get killed or I don't want the child to not have a dad saying, I don't want the child to be fearful of taking risks. And so they might come to a compromise and the compromise might be something like, okay, you know, Jimmy or Jane can climb the tree, but not above this level because then the, the fall can be too great. And those branches there, those are just newly growing branches. <laughs> they can't climb on those branches. You agree with that? Okay, okay. Um, and then, you know, but, and, and you gotta be out underneath that tree so that in case Jimmy or Jane falls, there, there's a there, there's a cushioning before the child dies. And by the way, give me your cell phone um, because you, you don't focus um, on the child when there's a cell phone uh, ringing. Right. And so dad and mom end up in best, in, in best case scenario of compromising and the child gets the best of the protection and the best of the risk taking. Um, but the father and mother need to know what the other, what the value of the contribution of the other one is. And these, and so when I started to do the research for the Boy Crisis book, I was astonished at the degree to which dad-style parenting, things like roughhousing, things like teasing, which mothers, when a, when a father teases a child, it's usually the father that teases, not the mother that teases. And the mother often thinks of that, that's really insensitive. You made the child cry. And very frequently, it's when a child has not had a history of being teased, uh, she or he will cry when being teased. Um, and the mother will often think of that as insensitive on the part of the father. Um, and, but the father doesn't understand. He he teases, but he doesn't understand how to explain to mom the value of teasing. And so I looked through all these parenting books and magazines. I couldn't find a single explanation of the value of teasing. Um, and so uh, when I did the writing of the boy crisis, I had to explain to not only moms what the value of teasing was, but also to the dads what the value of teasing was, because even though the fathers are more likely to do it, they're not likely to be able to explain what the value of it is. And then, of course, teasing is a perfect example of what you just said about teasing going too far is toxic. Mm -hmm. And, And protecting your child from all teasing is a different form of toxicity but almost many people can easily see that teasing going too far is toxic. Very few people see that not being teased is a different form of toxicity. The good-natured teasing is love, in my view. Good-natured teasing is a little bit like um, putting vitamins in a fruit smoothie. Um, you get the vitamins, but it goes down more easily in, with a tease than it does with a direct criticism. Yeah. And that, that's a line that oftentimes I think dads, well, I walk that myself and I have to realize, like you said, sometimes it, I have crossed the line, you know, mm-hmm. I've teased my kids and I was like, Oh, that was a little too harsh. And then I had to realize, wait a minute, I have to go apologize or I can't do that anymore. Or, you know, like I, with, with my son, I, there's been times where I'm like, Hey, sorry, I was, I was roughhousing, you know, I was roughhousing too hard or I, you know, I was 
uh, too rough on you when you gave up shooting the basketball or, you know, like there it, to me, one of the things I've learned is, and it's hard in this day and age too, to make mistakes because it feels like it lasts forever and your identity becomes the mistake. But I've been learning that it, it, trying to re- repeat it to myself, that it's okay to make mistakes, that I am present in my kid's life. It's okay to make mistakes, but then actually really do something from that mistake, not walk away from it, not avoid it, not run from it, not just go, well, I'm a dad. This is it. Like that, that is a real learning, uh, for me where I, I was like, oh, wait a minute. It is a two way street. My kids screw up and they apologize or we make them apologize to a neighbor or whatever. You know, if they do something wrong, I can do that too. And then it's okay. And then my kids learn that lesson as well. But it, it is difficult sometimes. I think like, cause I love teasing my kids and cutting up and they love it too. They, they know that dad, like dad, I'm the one that will chase them forever. And then like, I, I, you know, Saturday night I was chasing my kids for 30 minutes around the house. And it's always like, right as you're about to stop, one of the kids falls and hurts their toe or something, you know? And then, it, you know, and my wife's like, I knew something was going to happen. I was like, I know, but this is so fun and they will, will want to do it again. And it, and we're, it, you know, we're, I think you were talking about risk. The people that I often dislike the most or don't trust the most, whatever, never really took any risks. Like Matt and I, we took some real risks. Like, you know, we, we started this band. First of all, nobody starts a band in Greer, South Carolina. You know what I mean? That, that, that wasn't a viable option. And we were like, well, nobody's going to listen to our music. So let's move all the way across the country, 3,000 miles away from our family, because if we can get far enough away, we'll have to focus on this band. Like, we'll have to give it our all. If we live in a, you know, a two bed, three bedroom apartment with five or six guys crammed in here, we'll focus on this thing and let's just see. And I think that when you really do risk something, the, even if it fails, you learn so much. Even if you do fall out of that tree, like you said, it, it does hurt. It's not fun when you fall, but. You learn so much and you, and that, that goes into your next success or your next failure. All, all of that stuff accumulates. And I, I think that's so valuable. We, we have become, and I have even noticed that my wife and I have become so much more risk avoidant and I have to like convince myself, no, let like my son, we're at the park, you know, a, a few months ago and it's warmer and he's climbing pretty high up in a tree. And I was like, ah, oh, no, I was like, I don't want him to go any higher because I don't like it. Not him. Me, I, the only thing I stress though, the, I don't like it because yes. if he gets hurt, the, I then how much is it going to cost to pay the bill? You know, what is his mom going to say? How bad is he hurt? You know, all these things, and and so it's hard to be risky when it feels like everything you know is on the line. But I, I think it's one of the most important things. I, I totally agree with you. And so let's let's review some of the things you just said there and the importance. First of all, when you apologize for the child for going too far, you are a wonderful father example of. When you make a mistake, you can make a mistake, and then you come back, acknowledge the mistake, and you become man enough to apologize for it, or woman enough to apologize for it. Um, and and so, so that's part of what you're setting up as an example. Um, second, the, the the dimensions. Let's say, let's take roughhousing for example. Um, you know, typically speaking, let's say you have three kids. And, you know, you might throw all three kids in the couch and, um, and say, all right, your game, you know, your job is to jump off the couch onto my back and try to pin me down before I pin the three of you, three of you down and maybe uh, two brothers and a sister, let's say. Um, and so, and, and the kids are all excited about doing that because they know they're going to pin you down before the vice versa. And, and mom is looking on going, oh my God, I feel like I have just one more child to monitor here. There's not three kids, there's four kids. But then, (laughs) but then mom says to herself, you know, well, the kids do seem like they're having a lot of fun. Um, and I don't want to be too controlling. Um, and I do want, you know, the kids to get to connect with their dads and to bond with their dads. 
But on the other hand, I feel like sooner or later that somebody's going to get hurt. Well, it turns out that the mom is only about 99% likely to be right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sooner or later, somebody gets hurt. And and then somebody gets hurt. And dad says, you know, sweetie, um, you know, Jimmy, you can't stick your elbow in in Jane's eyes um, as a way of winning at at roughhousing. Uh, Okay, dad. Okay, dad. We won't do that again. We'll do, don't worry. So the kid, the, now dad says, all right, we'll go back to roughhousing. Now mom is looking on and saying, wait a minute, you didn't just learn your lesson that somebody got hurt, and now you're telling them to go back to the very process that just led to their being hurt? Uh, You really are hopeless and insensitive as a father, but she still tries to keep her mouth shut. Maybe she says a little something, but, you know, the kids overrule her along with the dad, and they go back to the roughhousing. This time, the kids go ahead and they do something else that's too aggressive. And dad stops the roughhousing and says, okay, no more roughhousing tonight. And the kids go, oh, no, dad, I didn't realize you, you before you said an elbow in the eye. Now, now you're just saying being ag- aggressive versus assertive. You didn't really tell us about that. <clears throat> you knew exactly what you were doing. Um, so, but you can try again tomorrow night. And mom is sort of now caught between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, wait a minute. He did stop the roughhousing tonight, but wait, he's rescheduling it for tomorrow night. He still hasn't learned his lesson. You know, doesn't he get it? Um, and so the next night, the um, the dad says, "Okay, you know, no, no, none of this. What you did last time that led to the roughhousing being uh, stopped. Now the kids know that if they do do that, they're going to lose their roughhousing." So for a little bit of, of aggressiveness, for a little bit of sticking the elbow in the sister's eye, they're going to lose what they really want, the roughhousing. So they have to postpone their gratification of immediate gratification of pushing sister or brother aside in exchange for a postponed gratification of, um, of getting the roughhousing when they postpone the, gratific- the immediate gratification. So the children are learning immediate uh, postponed gratification, but they're able to learn that because of a number of things are happening simultaneously. You as a dad have um, bonded with the kids as a result of the roughhousing, and you've shown that you're not, you're not just going to tell the kids there will be no more roughhousing, and then if they and and then if they do the rough I mean, the roughhousing, if they do the aggressiveness you say, you don't, you don't repeat yourself. You enforce the boundary of ending the roughhousing then and there. It is the boundary enforcement that separates the great majority of dads from the great majority of moms. And sometimes it's the reverse. And sometimes both parents are terrible at enforcing boundaries. Mm-hmm. But, the, uh, but when the dad is, has cr- used his bond with the children from the roughhousing, to enforce the boundary, then the children don't usually have a long-term alienation from the dad because they have this enormous desire to get back to the bonding experience of that roughhousing, that playing, uh, that chasing around the house. So they pay attention to the dad, both because they feel more bonded to him and B, because they know that when he says something, there is no repetition there is ex- the, the enforcement of the boundary is exactly what he says it's going to be, is no more roughhousing for, the, for that night. But the dad also doesn't need to make the comment of there's no more roughhousing ever 
because he's not so frustrated and angry, uh, which oftentimes a mom will, will do. She'll do a number of things. She will tend to not take the roughhousing away so quickly if she does roughhouse at all. And secondly, uh, she'll tend to repeat herself. And this makes it very frustrating for the mother who devoted to the children has said exactly the same thing that the dad has said. You can't stick the elbow in your sister's eye. You can't be too aggressive like this, but the children just go, okay, mom, okay, okay. And then they go ahead and do it anyway. And mom is sitting there saying, how is it that dad is saying the exact same thing that I'm saying? And I have to say it a hundred times and dad only says it once and the kids obey. That makes me feel so undervalued, um, even though I'm the one that spends more time with them than the kid, than the dad does. And the reason is because the dad has just said it once or twice and then enforced the, the, the boundaries that, that he said. This allows the children to get postponed gratification. Postponed gratification is what when the children are in school and they're um, doing their homework and somebody says, hey, let's play, the, there's a new video game out, let's play right now. And the child says, nope, I gotta finish my homework first because the child is trained, the brain is trained tra trained to have that postponed gratification. So the child does better in school, gets more praise from teachers, gets more respect from, uh, from other kids. And that doesn't have to be with homework related to schoolwork. It may be um, practicing basketball, practicing music, practicing acting, everything that you accomplish, something that requires discipline. So you begin to have more, uh, you begin be, you begin to be a winner. And when boys get to be about, you know, 12 or 13 or 14, and they start to have um, testosterone that makes them want girls, they begin to start realizing that girls are not interested in dating losers. They date the winners. Um, and so if they don't have that, um, so when the boy is not a, ha, doesn't have the postponed gratification and isn't a winner, he starts seeing that he's rejected by girls. Um, and then that leads to him feeling like um, um, very depressed. That often leads to him going to pornography. He goes to pornography because pornography is access to a variety of attractive women without fear of rejection at a price he can afford. <laughs> and, um, and so then he, then as he, as he becomes more and more addicted to pornography, he becomes more and more addicted to getting dopamine only from very risky things that he does with um, girls or women. When he finally does have a real life woman, that female that is interested in possibly being sexual with him, she feels treated like a porn object because she is being treated like a porn object. So she withdraws from him. He feels more rejected, which only proves to him he has to go back to porn in order to get to any satisfaction. That leads to depression, isolation, more addiction to video games, uh, sometimes um, in the worst case scenarios, um, severe depression that leads to drugs or um, alcohol or leads to, in the, in the super worst case scenario, um, suicide. And in the even worst case scenario than that, uh, things like um, mass shootings. That's a very depressing thing to go from the picture you're painting of the household uh, working organically um, to to those far-reaching outcomes in adulthood and, and beyond and how that those are linked. But I do want to just – I want to take a slight different direction here and get back to that, but I just really want to say the tree analogy and the roughhousing analogy both – they're not analogies. They're very real scenarios – directly but they both are so beautiful in that if they go well it's not a dad versus mom 
or kid versus parents. It's a collaboration where all the people are fully engaged with the thing at hand. And that is the thing when any, I mean, that's the magic of anything or the whole point. I, mean, I don't know, maybe the point of life or something. And the like, shared risk. That's what I love. The shared mm-hmm. of, of the risk. Like, but it's the collaboration it, yeah, of everybody. Right. The child's drives, the mom's this, the dad, this, well, whoever the two parents are and whatever their genders are, whatever, none of this, whatever it is, it's everybody working together with a, a present, being present with what is there. Um, yes. and, and that's a collaboration. And that that's the environment that children need to develop in is a, a collaborative one, you know. And that, so that's, I just really think that is a, a really good picture, but I want to zoom back to where you said, you know, you start talking about dopamine there and I'm wondering if we could flip a little bit more into the technical or the, you know, scientific and the brain, the brain part of this. And, um, because I think there's, uh, I'm at least fascinated with it. Are you a low dopamine hypothesis guy? Does that, is that, does that, can we, there's. The different wiring of minds and neurodivergence and ADHD and autism here really fit in and the labeling of that and the medicating of that and what the default state of people are in a neurochemical way seems to continue to come a long way and have been handled both good and bad. So uh, that's a lot more technical, but I'm curious what what your thoughts are there Um, in that low dopamine hypothesis thing being that you maybe that explains some of the male drive or something like that is that or why Ritalin works to or or something or the laziness or the apathy it's like we have to have very exciting things and that's not every male either but you know that range of is it that there's low dopamine and so we have to do crazy stuff to get motivation yes there's so many things that happen with the brain that you know when I one of the things that I loved about doing the research for 14 years in the boy crisis book is how many things I discovered about the brain and uh, things I didn't know, including that dads who are involved with children actually develop an entire dad brain. There's, there's dormant neurons that, um, that do not get activated in most men until they have a child. When they have a child, if they believe that their job as a, a father is going to be to work harder at something they like less, then there's a little bit of development of, of the neurons um, piecing, you know, sort of firing differently and creating a bit of a dad brain, but it's not that active because the father is interpreting that his job, his way of loving the children is to be away from the love of his children. It's what I call the father's catch-22. Um, but if the dad starts interpreting his the birth of that child as something that he's you know he's starting to touch the womb of the mom he's um, he's feeling connected to the child when the child is born uh, the, the dad's in the hospital uh, this has enormous impact on the uh, on the development of the, a, a whole nest of neurons that would otherwise be minimally active the his testosterone goes lower his um, oxytocin gets higher uh, so many uh, hormonal changes happen in the dad's brain. Uh, that makes him increasingly um, uh, more like a mom in the sense of attachment to the child. But there are different ways that his attachment uh, manifests, like the willingness to do the roughhousing and so on. But he wants to be around that ch- the, ch- the child and see that child develop. And so then he usually is in tension between the normal father's catch-22, which says, okay, you know, now I'm selling a pharmaceutical and, and um, 
in just outside of Atlanta, and my pro, you know, my 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 um, my territory is just near Atlanta. To I can make five times as much if I become a national salesperson for this, but that will take me from Atlanta to San Francisco or someplace else for the weekend, and I'll miss my child's recitals, birthdays, and things like that. And so, if the child, if if the father interprets that his 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 um, his role and his responsibility with the child is to yes be responsible financially, but mostly once he's earning fifty, sixty, seventy thousand a year, depending on where in the country he lives, his his job his the, the, the he understands that dad's time is worth more than dad's dime. If he gets that, the neurons of his brain begin to develop to have an entirely different, what I call in the boy crisis book, the dad brain. So that's one part of brain development. Another part is the dopamine part that you were talking about before. Uh, you know, first of all, dads um, do increase their dopamine um, when they have the dad brain from the contact with the child, the children, as opposed to increasing their dopamine from um, getting a promotion at work and being applauded by mom for getting that promotion. Um, but that's in conflict with the, uh, with the time they can spend with the child. Another dopamine dimension is in with pornography uh, that I was sort of referring to before. The uh, when when a, a, a guy first sees um, a female begin to take um, her dress a little bit lower and almost expose her breast, and he's a 13, 14 year old boy, he gets really turned on. But the 20th time he sees that, the turn on level is not as great. So the dopamine does not keep, um, it gets it, it gets desensitized. And so he has to go to another level of pornography. This time he has to see her take all her clothes off. The next time he has to see her make love. The next time he has to see her um, have sex where the, she's resisting and he's um, coming on. And, you know, and then it ends up being passionate. The next time it gets more and more graphic. Um, and by the time he gets to a, a, a real, so his dopamine keeps being dependent upon increased amounts of stimulation. The problem is that when he gets to a real, he's, he's not getting to understand real life females. Real life, two things happen with boys. They're, they're the prime, they're still today, they're expected to be the primary uh, risk taker of asking the girl out. We don't train girls in school today. To, to share the responsibility of getting rejected um, by asking boys out. We give them the option to initiate with boys without being shamed, but we don't give them the expectation to initiate with boys without being shamed. So as a result of that, boys still take more of the initiative taking. And then the result of that is also, and because their testosterone level is higher, they that is also a reason that they take more initiative taking the average boy in ninth, 10th grade would be very fine about having sex with you know two thirds of the most attractive girls in class within a five minute period of time or really within a 25 second period of time. <laughs> and so there is, uh, so he's still the one that is more likely to take that sexual initiative. But a boy who's addicted to video games doesn't know enough about girls to know um, how to do this well. So the, in video games, there is not the nuance of female psychology, a, a woman going, I don't know if you can see me well enough here, um, but 
you know, a woman just sort of changing her eye contact a little tiny bit or responding, um, you know, if you, do you want, do you want to, do you want to kiss? Okay. She's technically said yes, but that tone of voice was not a yes. All right. But you don't learn to get, you don't learn those little nuances by watching video games. You learn to, you know, beat the opponent, um, you know, to be a hero. You don't, um, and, but what, so what is required in video games um, and to win is very different than what is required to win in relationships. Um, and so, and this has been one of the real things that has um, made children today, young adolescents today, so lonely and isolated is because they're increasingly disconnected from the, 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 the human signals, um, tones of voice, um, things that aren't even said. Um, that are that are said through body language, through eye contact, through um, very very slight t- changes in tones of voice, uh, that are not what happens in um, in video games. And so, these are just a few of the examples of the way the brain is affected and and dopamine is impacted, um, and how it um, you know and how the addiction to video games and um, to uh, iPhones are really um, working against so many young people today, and especially boys because. When a guy asks a woman out on a date, there's about a 99.5% likelihood that he's interested in being sexual with her. When the woman accepts that date, the more he has to offer, that is, let's go to the best restaurant in town, the less certain he can be of whether or not she's interested in being sexual or just going to the best restaurant in town. And so um, the more important it is for a guy to be aware of the myriad of nuances in female um, receptivity and non-receptivity because her nuances are far more likely to have an outcome that is either positive or negative, whereas we all know what his interest is. I mean, it's not not that it's his only interest, um, but that one of his interests is being sexual. Fascinating. Do um, there's a section in your book, um, and I just got the book this last week, so I haven't read read it yet. But I've scanned through it, and there's, it's so expansive. It covers so much stuff from the science to the social to stuff that just you know almost it's just you know kind of all over the place. But there's something in there about uh, when you, when you're talking about parenting, there's fighting in front of the kids. That was one of the things I wanted to get to and read about but i haven't yet so i was curious if you could tell me um that that's one thing that i know but like it's just a very clear thing i know it's not good for kids and yet um that's one of the things that our family struggles with we are very me and my wife and my kids we're all in the we we just do a lot of we do a pretty good amount i come from an argumentative home it's argumentative mm-hmm. people and fighting in front of kids is and in that way or with them is is definitely something that's in our environment so i'm curious your thoughts on that Absolutely. This is one of those things where you were talking about before, um, where Toby was using the, the, the thing about going too far, um, you know, in, in either direction. So not fighting ever in front of, not disagreeing in front of children and having a little bit of tension is a negative. 
too much disagreeing in front of children and arguing and shouting and interrupting each other and never hearing each other and having it lead to not talking with each other um, and, you know, and disconnecting from the kids and throwing things around or, you know, that type of thing, that really leaves a real negative effect. So the not arguing is a little bit more complex to understand. Um, the ch children who grow up in an argument, um, in an environment where there's never, was almost never an argument, where there's never sort of a, um, a, tone, a tone of voice that is getting angry, um, that they are, when they, when they have their own real life relationship, uh, people are often, they often say opposites attract, they just can't live together. <laughs> One of the reasons that opposites often attract is that, you know, people who, um, who never argue are usually tend to be passive aggressive. They tend to do other things to uh, make, get their point across. Um, and they, and they tend to be when they marry somebody who has come from an argumentative background or a background where there was a lot of fighting and arguing, um, they tend to be um, really scared about, you know, an, an argument because they think that that's the end. You know, they've never seen that. They've never known how to get through it, how to get used to it. That said, so what's the solution? One of the things that I vowed to myself when I did the research and the writing of the Boy Crisis book was that every single problem I would create a solution for or, or you know, share a solution for. And one of the most important solutions for um, is to is to have family dinner night. So I have in the Boy Crisis book uh, a whole appendix devoted to how to create a family dinner night without it becoming a family dinner nightmare. And so uh, the first step of that is how to take elect, uh, how to make sure there are no electronics at the table uh, during the one time a week. Let's say that you set aside for a family dinner night, and then second is making sure that you're going around the table and having each person at the table share uh, what his or her answer to a particular problem. Maybe you're talking about um, um, dating at the, at, the, at the dinner night and maybe the, the issue is what age is it fine to date? And maybe the kids are saying uh, age nine is perfectly fine. And maybe the adults are saying age 13 is perfectly fine. And so, um, and so there is, uh, and so the, uh, what normally speaking parents do and children do is the parents, as the child gives their perspective of, let's say, age nine is fine, the parents will begin to start interrupting or you'll see their body language disconnect and uh, move into uh, lecture mode. Even if it's not even the interrupting lecture, the kids can see that the, the, the mom and dad has tuned out. And so the first step of, uh, of, of um, the family dinner night is going around and making sure that each person who speaks is heard by one or two people in the family to the degree that the parent, let's say, uh, or the, the, the child, let's say, who speaks, um, that the parent says, okay, um, instead of interrupting and arguing with the child says, now what I heard you say was this, and then, and then gives the child a, a chance to say, you know, was that exactly what you said? And the child says, well, it's sort of, but that's not exactly what I said. And then the child um, sort of fixes it and says what he, he or she felt that they actually did say. And the mom or dad's job is not to say, well, I, I basically said that. Um, and, but it's, but it's rather to, um, is to, to share again and work at it until the child feels that nothing that he or she said was distorted by the mom or dad. 
And some moms and dads are pretty good about doing this. But the moms and dads who are very good about doing this are usually good about doing it for the children, but they're often not good about requiring the children to do it for them. And the problem when, with being a very empathetic parent without requiring empathy in reverse is that if you talk to a teacher who has a very empathetic child in their classroom, and then at parent-teacher night, it'll turn out often that those parents are not empathetic, you know, super empathetic type, wow. of, type of parents. They're often parents requiring the child, things of the child. That empathy does not beget empathy if it isn't, re if it isn't required in both directions. Um, and so, that, and, and this is one of the, you know, the, something I learned from my sister who was a, a second grade teacher, you know, when she would, uh, she would see that oftentimes the, you know, the children that were most empathetic were the ones with the stricter parents, the children that were the uh, most um, uh, self-centered were the ones with the extremely empathetic parents that all, thought it was just their job to think, to, to uh, understand the children, but not their job as parents to require that the child also understands them. Wow. So the family, the family dinner night has to have, you know, these types of multi-purposes. And so if, if you're getting the boy crisis book, just make sure to look at appendix um, um, A, which, um, which outlines exactly how to set up a family dinner night. And then throughout the book, I look at a number of things that the, a parent, the, the parents and children are likely to get into tension mode about and how to adjust that parent din dinner night to, to deal with those things. And the, the last thing I'll say on that issue is most parents are afraid to discuss things that are very controversial with their children, right. especially around things about sexuality or worst case scenario, rape or something along those lines. You want your children to give up their video games and their electronics at their table, especially boys, feel comfortable knowing how to discuss controversial topics that are real. Mm -hmm. that, will, and that will give your son or daughter, but especially your son, an inspiration to drop the electronics because stuff that is happening at the table is more real, more controversial, more able to be heard by everybody. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it's also teaching your children how to deal with all these nuances and how to listen. Uh, without be, without interrupting and the, and knowing how to empathize before you give your own side of an argument is the core to uh, the development of a good a marriage, good relationship um, with anyone in your, in your life and a good relationship in the workplace as well. I'm getting so much out of this, and I know other people are too. Just these these descriptions of real life events are so easy to imagine, and you're painting this picture where the dynamics you can really you can really put yourself in the position of what it'd be like to be the kid here. Or the mom. Like I can think I'm thinking from the kid's point of view and the mom's point of view, not just the dad's in the way that you're setting these scenarios. So I really appreciate you making them into concrete examples that everybody knows about. That's very, very awesome. And it's, it's occurring to me that something, and tell me if I'm on the right track here, but the, the empathy thing, I hadn't thought about that before, but there's something about the, the development of the empathetic imagination that is required or that like uh when it's un i'm trying to figure out what the unhealthy part of that is like if if you don't if the parent isn't empathetic and the kid doesn't feel heard or safe then that might cause the kid to 
become really empathetic in, in order to have to figure out what's going on in the minds of others or something like that? When, when, the, when the parents are just empathetic, then the kids learn that I'm, that it's, that it's all about me. They don't need empathy in that they, they, situation. They don't need empathy because it's not required of them. But empathy, in the reverse, what happens? Where, and, where go ahead. Where, where, the, um, where, the, where the parents are um, too, where often when parents are restrict and require something of the child, then the child has to learn to think about my sister when I'm roughhousing. When, um, you know, like we talked about before, like um, mom and dad need to have time um, alone and together um, when they're not disturbed. Uh, mom and dad need to have a date night. Uh, mom and dad need to have time to be able to say to you what they feel um, like they need to say and have you not just go, oh, okay, um, but to sh share what you heard and share what you heard until mom and dad feel like that was not a distorted version of what they heard. Mm -hmm. um, and so the empathy has to be a two-way street. And then when the empathy is a two-way street, the empathy becomes a two-way street. That's interesting because my parents were really restrictive and disciplinary and I am hugely empathic. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I mean, that, that, that is something. And I mean, so much so, like I actually became the mediator between them. They ended in divorce, but I was actually called to be the voice for both of them and to explain what they were. They couldn't communicate with each other almost at all by the end. And, but I, at, and as a teenager started saying, this is mom, do you see what dad's saying here that dad you can't be like you know and then they would get mad at me they would resent me for it because they thought when i was doing that sometimes I, I was taking the other side but i was just trying to mediate there but uh or we've had you for a little bit but i just i have to ask you this question um one of the things you talk about is, is the family court system and, we, and you know you hear a lot about uh, toxic masculinity and when you think about dads and divorce it's, it's just, I mean, everybody would go, well, yeah, the mom gets the kids or, you know, and maybe he deserved it because he was a cheater or maybe he was a deadbeat dad or whatever it might be. But the, the, the court system is really skewed. The men that I've have talked with who have gone through divorce, uh, I mean, unless it's super amicable with their ex, the men really do not re receive time or uh, financially it, it's a certain way, you know, and, and in some cases maybe that's needed, but I'm wondering but the question I have is, when we were talking about risk earlier, it feels extremely risky to get married these days if you're a man. Like, if you're a man, it seems like what, like, if it doesn't work out, and we know at least, usually it's at least 50% of a chance that it's not going to work out. You know, you're at the roulette table, you know, you bet on red, and here we go, let's see what happens. Uh, it, like, that risk, do you think men are going to stop getting married? Is that, I mean, what that risk there, it, it seems like almost so lopsided to like be dangerous for a man to get married, it, it, especially with like wanting to be with your kids or, you know, what, what, do, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. Um, but it's most um, precarious when you have children mm -hmm. um, because the courts still, you know, almost every judge I know, and I do a lot of expert witness work and because the research um, for the, not only the boy crisis, but for other books I've written, um, make it really clear that children do so much better with, when they have both, when they have four things happening after divorce. Number one, the four must do's if you do get divorced are the following. One is a, um, the children that do the best have an equal amount of time with their father and mother after divorce. Number two, that the children who do the best 
the mother and father live within 20 minutes drive time from each other so the children don't have to forfeit an activity um, to um, or or seeing their go, um, going to their uh, best friend's um, birthday party um, in order to see the uh, because they're seeing the other parent that lives far away. Uh, number three, that the child is not able to detect any bad mouthing from mom to dad or dad to mom. That is really important. Number four is that the parents be involved in consistent um, communication counseling uh, with a good relationship counselor. Um, after um, divorce, uh, not an occasional emergency-based counseling, but consistent counseling, emergency-based counseling, because it's an emergency, usually the parent has to argue their perspective only. Consistent counseling that is not emergency-based often allows with a good therapist, that both parents to understand the other person, the other person's point of view and their best intent. So when you have those four must-dos of divorce, um, the children tend to do much better. However, most judges agree with me about that. But when I'm in court the and, and testifying for that, saying those four things, um, the judges say, yes, I agree. But this couple, uh, they can't even, you know, they can't even agree on almost anything. That's their divorce. They're fighting. That's they're here in court. So now that I have to, don't I have to therefore choose <clears throat> to have one parent be the primary parent? The answer to the judge is no, but the judge is far more likely when there is that, uh, when the when the mother is saying something like, well, I'm afraid of the father, um, you know, or the father raises voice to me and, and is far more likely to be empathetic to the mother who's afraid of the, saying that she's afraid of the dad than to the father. And so that leads to, in essence, the mom having the right to the children and the dads having to fight for children. So the so even though theoretically, the the people who should call who should be calling me to testify in court should be equal numbers of men and women. And for thirty years, until just last year, I never had a single woman call me to say that her husband was the one preventing her from being equally involved with the children after a divorce. It's been always the father saying, I want to be equally involved. I don't want to be the sole parent. I'm, I recognize the child needs a mother and I want her to have the mother. Besides, it also gives me some free time and, and some flexibility. Um, and But I don't want to be left out of the children's lives or just be there um, every other weekend and one night in the, in the, in the week. And so, um, and so under those circumstances, the judges are prone, both male and female, to, um, to, to work in the direction of giving the primary custody to the mother. And that is very, very destructive. And so what's happening with marriages today is that women are much less likely to want to be married because they're, they're, they're a, the boy crisis has produced many fewer men who are out earning or earning as much or more than um, the woman and are very productive and successful and highly motivated. And men are becoming more fearful of getting married because if they, if they, once they have children, uh, they're far more likely to lose the children. So they, when they get married, um, if they, if they do get divorced, uh, they're likely to lose all sources of love. The source of love called their wife, which is now the ex-wife, and also be, often becomes a source, source of criticism and hate. 
Um, number two, they're likely to lose the children. And that's one of the reasons why they're eight times more likely during a custody battle to feel so lost that they commit suicide. It's brutal stuff. Um, and it's, I don't, I mean, who knows where all of it's going culturally. I mean, there's, uh, there's lots of things shifting and especially with technology and the way, I don't know, it's just, we're in such a time, but I really appreciate the perspectives and the concreteness and I, this is controversial stuff so even the tone of this podcast is like it's got me very tuned in that feeling like you said at the dinner table or whatever it's controversial almost what you're saying um but it's not about that therefore i'm highly alertly listening and i think our listeners will get that um as well so i, I, I really appreciate uh the the time and attention you put into this topic because it's just i mean it touches if you're just talking about divorce and children like that's everybody's touched by that like that scope everybody has a child development experience and almost everybody has a close experience with divorce and and things like that and so to keep to keep it real practical and looking at the causes and effects like this it's been it's just really really good very yeah mindful. i just i just really appreciate your work this i mean the book is great um, and, and like matt said it's so expansive it's not like Oh, well, let me just, you know, scoot through a few chapters or whatever. Like you go into so much detail and give so much examples. And, and I know you worked on it for so long. Um, and so I just really appreciate it. Where can folks find, I know uh, you have, uh, warrenferrell.com, two R's, two L's. And my last name is Morel, two R's, two L's. But, uh, where else can they find the book or where, where else can people find you? Certainly least expensive on Amazon. And, um, and, and, but if you're, if you have the income to be able to support a local bookstore, I really think that's, that's great. Um, second, there is something that will be coming out that I can make available if somebody um, emails me. And my my email is warren at warrenferrell.com. And the Ferrell is F-A-R-R, not F-E-R, like Will Ferrell. Not, I'm not that funny. Um, but the, um, so the, um, but um, is that um, I've just finished putting a couples communication course on Zoom. And the best way to prevent the boy crisis is having good communication in your marriage so you don't have a divorce to begin with. Um, so it doesn't lead to the lack of father involvement. Um, and it's pretty much the best way to get through life in general is to be able to know how to hear people and the way that I've evolved in the 30 years of teaching the couples course. The value of uh, the value of the of the positive value of the pandemic is that I've had the time to be able to put that on uh, in Zoom form. So if somebody just emails me and asks me about that, I'll give you the details um, on the on the um, couples communication Zoom course. That's great. I'm going to get more from the book too because it's. I, I'm glad I have a copy of it um, because it's not like a. It's not even just the stuff we talked about today. There's all kind of stuff about supplements in there and technical stuff and what you glutathione yeah. and like <laughs> like right. this. Yeah. This got details and levels in that. That's both social, personal. Um, neuroscience practical physical all this stuff so um yeah, but it's also really extremely readable video. that's what's yeah. so cool about it. it's extremely readable uh or i know you're a busy person but it, you know maybe a, a few months from now if, if there's any way we could bring you back on and talk about that couple's communication course i would love i know you're busy so if you can't if you don't have time uh don't worry about it but i i am fascinated by that 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 is one of the biggest issues the communication within uh you know r relationships is just I, I mean especially as we're moving into uh, online and virtual and all that stuff like communication now actually understanding each other listening and is, is is now maybe even more crucial than anything else maybe it always was but uh we'd love to have you back in the future if if, if you have the opportunity because i'd really love to pick your brain on that one i would love to do that um the answer is yes uh, just communicate with me obviously and number two there's nothing that is more important 
particularly today's day and age, um, that of knowing how to really hear people we disagree with, whether it's in the family or whether it's Republican and Democrat or um, you know or Israeli and Arab. Um, this is you know the single biggest source of human grief is our our natural propensity uh, to be um, defensive when we're criticized. And that's the Achilles heel, the single biggest Achilles heel of all human beings. And it's there is a way to work around it, but it's you know it's I subtitled my course the art and discipline of love, um, and it's and it, love is biologically natural. Uh, falling in love is biologically natural. Sustaining love is biologically unnatural, um, and so it really takes an art and a discipline to sustain love that literally has never been taught. And so that that was the motivation for me doing the um, the, the couples course. That's awesome. All right, Warren, we hope you have a great rest of your day. We really do appreciate your time. This was great. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure being with both of you. You're, you're both you, interested, involved, and creative, and um, it's just been a total pleasure. Yeah, we'll oh, follow we really up. I'll send you some of the stuff that we do and other interesting things, and we'll have you back. So, yeah. great. And, and a awesome. few of the, of the songs you yep. must recommend. Great. Yeah, for sure. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye.